Hi, you're listening to Ghost Notes, the podcast where we look at music from the inside and out. My name is Noah, but you probably know me best as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey, and I'm Mike 12-Tone, and this is the first official episode of what we're calling Ghost Notes and Friends, which is a new guest series. The way this is going to work for now is that every month you're still going to get on the 15th a new episode from me and Noah, but every other month on the 1st we're also going to do one of these bonus guest episodes. And this episode's guest I'm really excited about. It's one of my favorite YouTubers on the entire platform. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. Wow, I'm blushing. I'm Laura, uh, Laura Crone. I make YouTube videos under the name Laura Crone. What are your videos on for those who haven't seen your channel, Laura? Right. That's a good thing to talk about. The tagline I've been going with lately is Film Fights Feelings, uh, which I wouldn't say encompasses all of it, but that's sort of the baseline is uh, we start with movies and then it's kind of whatever else I feel like talking about, including occasionally music theory. Awesome. And do you have any kind of a background in music theory? Very, very loosely. So I started playing piano when I was a really little kid. I was in like the marching band in high school, all of that kind of stuff. And so sort of picked it up from there. But in terms of like actual academic theory, not specifically, no. Okay, yeah, that's kind of pretty similar to my background when it comes to the music theory stuff. So we're on equal footing here. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty similar to mine, too, honestly. This is what we're going to be doing with these uh, ghost notes and friends is the guests will be offering up whatever topic they want to talk about. And what was it that you wanted to talk about? Hopefully music related, but yes, (laughs) we're not going completely wild. (laughs) Yes, so I brought the idea of film scores and specifically how we judge a film score as good or in the awards context, best. I think that's a great topic and I think film scores are something that a lot of people are just generally interested in. I mean, who doesn't love waking up and blaring some John Williams or Howard Shore? (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a really interesting one. Just like, honestly, it's a topic I don't like spend that much time thinking about. Partly because like early in this whole like music theory YouTube experiment, a couple people like really aggressively staked out certain claims. Like 8-Bit was the video games guy and Sideways was the film guy. And so I was just like, I'm just not going to get into that. So it's like, definitely interested to like talk more about it and actually have thoughts you know yeah but yeah i mean let's start with a simple question what makes music good or film music good oh yeah or what makes music good in general just just completely sidetracked from the get-go yeah (laughs) yeah that's a real ghost (laughs) notes topic for us (laughs) <laughs> yeah, just gonna just gonna dive right in with the simple answers to the big questions. Very, That's what we, very we're easy. Doing here. You know, just ease in. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I think the reason why this specifically interests me in the context of film scores is that on top of just what makes music good being an incredibly subjective question, you're dealing with two very separate questions with a film score, which is first, it's is it good music, and then also is it effectively telling the story or effectively contributing to the story um and those are those are both incredibly subjective questions that tend to not always get separated out so much and so i find that really interesting in the question of like what is the academy actually looking at in terms of like which of those questions or how do you try to wrap both of them up because they're two very separate things So can you think of something that kind of comes to mind to you that, say, maybe is good musically and is enjoyable, but actually doesn't do a great job of supporting the story? You know, it's so funny. I have actually, I've been thinking about this and I've been having the hardest time actually coming up with an example of something that I feel is really aggressively on that end. 
it's more like I can think of scores that like the reason I like them is because I like to listen to them. Like I think about the Pirates of the Caribbean. I can't tell you off the top of my head how great that is as a piece of the movie. Like I think it is. It's definitely doing a lot to yeah. kind of evoke the genre, if nothing else. Um, yeah, it works. But the reason why I like it is because it slaps. Yes. Yeah. I think I agree with you there in a way where like when you compare that to like one of my favorite pieces of film scoring is probably like the Roharim's theme in Lord of the Rings. And mm -hmm. yes. that's one where it's like anytime I hear that I am like intrinsically in a headspace where I am like in Middle Earth you know, there. Yeah. Whereas if you play the Pirates of the Caribbean theme song, I'm like, this is just like a romp in good time. Yes. <laughs> I mean, one possible example, and I'm sure we may wind up getting more into this in a future episode if we ever drag Patrick Willems on here, but like the pop music Needle Drop as an example of something that can be great music, but not really good for storytelling because songs you already know can already have all of these associations. Doing that haphazardly, I'm trying to think of a specific example. Uh, sympathy for the Devil. Anytime yeah. any movie uses Sympathy for the Devil is the really straightforward example. We can argue whether or not that is even like a film score thing, quote unquote, because it is, again, an external piece of music being played in a film. But it doesn't necessarily do a good job storytelling, even though Sympathy, sympathy for the Devil is a good song. Yeah, absolutely. I think. I, I'm going to stake that thing, at least. <laughs> I'm with you. I don't know if this qualifies as a needle drop exactly, but I think mine on that end is In the Hall of the Mountain King. Oh, yeah. Like, anytime yeah. I hear In the Hall of the Mountain King, it's just like, what you're telling me is you went with your first choice and you did not come up with yeah. any other ideas and... Yeah, I've kind of landed on the idea that we're done within the Hall of the Mountain King until someone does a gritty Pier Gint, and then you can use it in the trailer. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I would love a gritty yeah. Pier Gint. Gymnopy, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. In the Hall of the Mountain King actually brings us to an interesting point with that kind of stuff, which is using existing classical music as scores. I mean, there's obviously things like I don't think anyone would argue that using like Thus Spoke Zarathustra or however you pronounce that in uh, 2001 is a bad choice. But there's definitely a lot of things where these classical pieces have kind of become these cliche go to almost like a shortcut yeah. for making somebody feel a certain emotion. I mean, this is the classic thing in art of all stripes is just like you can make any decision you want but if you're making it because you didn't bother thinking about it it's not going to work out very well like we look at like classic chord progressions to sort of step back to areas that i'm a bit more familiar with like one six four mm -hmm. five like lots of amazing songs have used those and you can still use them but you sort of have to know that you're tapping into this cultural legacy in order for it to be used in a way that I think at this point in like 2021 is still exciting. Yeah, like I think that is something that can happen particularly with these classical pieces that you hear over and over again is every once in a while you see a use where it's being used in a way that is very aware that it's a cliche, but particularly like on YouTube, I feel like I see YouTubers yeah. being aware of what they're bringing to the table in terms of that history with those classical yeah. pieces. And I think that's really interesting. I think one place where a lot of these classical pieces, especially actually something like in the Hall of the Mountain King or stuff like that, are kind of used lazily is in a lot of comedy movies. Like in a lot of comedy movies, you'll have that or you'll have like characters... I don't know, like an awkward situation where someone that shouldn't be at a fancy dinner is at a fancy dinner and Mozart is playing or things like that. Like these kind of just cheap signifying shortcuts. Yeah. yeah. As with anything, there are ways to do that well and ways to do that poorly. But I agree that it's like you can get like you'll, you'll see like 
dramatic scenes. There's not necessarily care paid to it because the point is just to say, like, this is an action scene. Ride of the Valkyries mm. is another mm-hmm. very overused one. So this is, this is why I keep Noah around, is he thinks of examples for me. <laughs> <laughs> or O Fortuna. Oh, yeah. Carmina Burana. So one of the strangest things I've ever seen, and this is like a whole other can of worms when it comes to film, is like how things are credited. But one of the strangest things I've ever seen that I'm still thinking about this was I saw the the Sonic the Hedgehog movie. And uh, this is like the only thought that I have on the Sonic the Hedgehog movie is that there's a moment where Jim Carrey as Robotnik is like humming Ride of the Valkyries. So like there's no recording or anything. He's just he's just humming it. And it's still credited in the music, like at the very end of the credits, but it's credited as Flight of the Valkyries, which is which is not the name of the piece. And I'm just so confused about why that happened and how that happened. <laughs> that just makes me want a Flight of the Bumblebee and Ride of the Valkyries. Oh, yes. <laughs> I think there are also kind of moments where I know actually speaking of film score, uh, people sideways did a video on some of the scoring of the latest Star Wars movies and their kind of strange use of leitmotif. And I think that's something that you actually especially see in trailers. A lot of the time you'll see these original score pieces used in trailers in very kind of like weird ways that don't exactly make sense. Yeah, now that I'm trying to think of examples. But, uh... Yeah, same. I'm trying to think of something other than the binary sunset. Binary sunset is one where, and I mean, I think there's also these things with the Star Wars movies where the way that they're built, a lot of their kind of like light motifs have kind of like evolved and changed as the series has expanded and like something like binary sunset or like han and leia's love theme is something that's suddenly used to represent just like any big emotional moment or something like that and the thing is i have mixed feelings on that like i don't actually know if that's necessarily a bad thing if you're still eliciting the proper emotional reaction from the audience, because I think primarily the job of the score is to elicit emotional reactions. Maybe we'll have a bit of a disagreement in this, but I think that that's more important than the score kind of telling the story. I think the story should be told by the film. Well, I don't think those are separate. Yeah. I think that emotion is an important part of narrative, right? And this is one of those things I'm sure you've seen demonstrations. I'm sure lots of people have seen demonstrations of this where you take the exact same footage and just play very different music on top of it. And you fundamentally change not only the, the emotion you're feeling, but the story you're telling. Like a friend of mine did a video, Neurotransmissions, just shout out to them. They're great. But like did a video where he sort of played the same scene where he sort of like stood up, walked into a room with a look on his face and then walked towards the light. And one of them was playing angelic music and the other was playing horror music. And it's like you have a completely different conception of what he's walking towards in both of those two situations because the music is different. Yeah, absolutely. So then kind of on the other side of the coin, Laura, what are some of your favorite places where you think music does a great job underlining those emotions and telling the stories and where you think that music actively kind of like justifies, like you were talking about in the context of the Academy and stuff, what are some cases where you think it justifies the acclaim that it gets and why is that? Yeah, so my like classic one, less because I think it actually holds up as absolutely fabulous and more because it was the one that really got me started thinking about this was the Trent Reznor Atticus Ross score for the David Fincher Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which just like for me as a young 
person who was just kind of starting to learn how to think critically about media. I was in college when that came out, so I was like in acting school, really in full like think hard about stuff kind of mode, like just learning how to do that. And (laughs) that was a movie that just I felt like the way that the score interacts with the story is like telling you things all of the time that are not already there. Like, it's always adding this extra dimension, which is very emotional because it's music and that's kind of the level on which it does speak to you. But it's kind of constantly creating this level that runs a little bit counter to what you're seeing happen, which is really, really appropriate for that movie. And, you know, that was like the first Oscars that I paid attention to ever in my life. And that was the race that I had a really strong opinion about. And I was really, really mad at the time that the artist beat it. But, you know, I I feel like it's a very sophomore in art school kind of take. I do still really love that score. You know, and like I say, like, I don't want to sit down and listen to that score, like while I'm writing or, you know, doing a workout or something. It, It doesn't really (laughs) that's that's not your pumping iron music (laughs) (laughs) no (laughs) no in the way that like the tron legacy yeah score absolutely like that's probably one of the albums that i listen to the most full stop well the tron legacy score is so interesting because it's like it's just a daft punk album (laughs) yes (laughs) i don't think i would put it in the category of not working for the film. It's exactly what that movie should have. Yeah, it's Tron. It wants a Daft Punk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Tron and Daft Punk is a match made in heaven. We're actually hitting on a couple interesting scores too because I think a lot of the time what comes to mind when you mention movie scores for a lot of people are like the big symphonic orchestral John Williams, Hans Zimmer things. But I mean like... I love generally all of kind of Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor's work, like scoring films. It's all very interesting and shows a lot of the ways that you can make film music do work without it drawing attention to itself, without it being this huge, grandiose thing that you want to like sing, you know, like it can do so much work being weird and atmospheric and creepy and kind of pulling at the subconscious bits of your mind that are listening to the music while you're focusing on the story. Yeah. Yeah. And to sort of draw an analogy that I think sort of I was thinking about going into this is just like, because for me, sort of when you ask the question, like, is this music good? That sets off just so many alarm bells in my head, right? Like (laughs) immediately all of my music theorist instincts are like, no, you can't do that. That's not how this works. But like, obviously a piece of film music isn't just an isolated, like absolute piece of music. It's also embedded within a larger work of art. So I've sort of been thinking of it like, you know, looking at a song and pointing out like, is this a good chord? And sometimes the answer is yes. Like if you look at like, no one I have talked about, like the E major in Hallelujah, right? Like that's... (laughs) yeah. That's a good chord. But like a good chord progression isn't just a list of the best chords in order, right? Like it's all about context. It's all about how those chords interact with the melody, how they interact with the lyrics and the orchestration and all these other things. And in the same way, like most of the chords in a song aren't going to be chords that you're like, oh, I love that. I want to listen to that chord all day. (laughs) Like a good work of film music doesn't have to be something that you want to go like listen to on repeat on Spotify. Like it can just be something that serves the scene and works for the purposes of what that story is trying to do. 
I think another great example, actually, in a Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross one is their work in Soul, the like newish Pixar movie. Oh, I didn't know they were involved in that. That actually makes me more interested in watching it. I haven't seen it yet. Well, the scoring of that movie in general is really interesting because they have kind of two scores going on for these the two kind of parts of the story where there's the one part of the story that takes place in the like metaphysical afterlife place and that's where you have like Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross doing this very ambient new age thing that is really helping you feel like this like ethereal like feel like you're in this place beyond the living world and then when you're in the living world you've got this jazz score done by John Batiste and that's something that is very kind of grounded and feels like a lot closer to something that would be I don't know like didactic or something that you would like just put a record on and listen to that and so by having these two scores that are so kind of different from each other tonally it does a lot to really underline the differences between these places in the story and I think that's something that's really kind of neat conceptually is having different composers for the two different realms that the story takes place in yeah that's really cool I'm curious if either of you have seen Mank no I have not I haven't seen it either because the truth of it is the main compelling thing to me about this movie is Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross doing a score that is not synthy, that's like kind of evoking this period in film history. And I'm really interested to see like whether that kind of effect of it being that more kind of like sub level that's doing something a little bit counter or like adding another level is just something that I kind of associate with like ambient music or if if it's something that's a little bit more like a quality of the composition. Once Fincher worked with Ross and Reznor, it's like, okay, these guys are going to be scoring all of my movies <laughs> from now on. And they've done so many good ones. And they're so suited to that kind of like spacey, dark, psychological Fincher thing. I agree. It's definitely interesting to try to see how they would work outside of that realm yeah and that brings up another i think going back to soul a little bit because i haven't seen soul so noah feel free to correct me if i'm wrong here but i assume that at least the jazz side of it is fairly diegetic yeah i think i said didactic when i meant diegetic it's kind of coming in and out of diegesis but it's definitely there are sections where it is purely diegetic yeah when you're talking about what makes a good sort of piece of film music, I think really has to be sort of a significant consideration. Like, because I think what makes a good piece of diegetic music is fundamentally different than what makes a good piece of non-diegetic music. And just in case anyone listening doesn't know, should probably define terms. Diegetic music is music the characters can hear. Non-diegetic music is music that only the audience can hear. Just real quick, just get that out of the way. On the topic of kind of diegetic music and something that I think is really, really cool and interesting is the soundtrack to Baby Driver, which uses the gap bridged between diegetic and non-diegetic music really, really well and plays with how films are scored by having this character who always has a headphone in his ears and is playing these like indie rock songs. Yeah. Something that I heard that I don't have a source on this, but like apparently the story of that movie was basically just Edgar Wright, like picturing really cool driving <laughs> scenes to different songs 
and the whole conceit of the tinnitus and the the headphones really just came out of like, well, how do I make this not just a two hour music video? I mean, I liked the movie. I think I would have liked it better if it was a two hour music video. <laughs> like the the driving scenes are just so good. Yeah, I think another score that's one of my favorite scores, especially in the category of works so well for the film but i would never like listen to it in my free time is i don't know who does it but the score for a uh, birdman mm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah for those who haven't seen the movie birdman is like it's this mostly drum score and it's super kind of chaotic it's a score where it almost feels like the music is not just working with the story but it feels like the music is working with the camera You know, because the whole movie is shot in this kind of one take handheld like camera kind of following people and whipping around and stuff like that. And there's this chaotic score that at times it almost feels like the drums are like driving the camera movements. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say is that like it feels like the story is just happening and the drums are like the sound of the kind of observer who you become via this like cameraman who's running around and it almost like is like this extra character whose shoes you're sort of in between the two of them who's just like kind of outside of the story but also part of the story the score can kind of serve different purposes in that like i would say a lot of the big like light motify things it's more like the score is a narrator mm-hmm. you know like the score is kind of this omniscient narrator who's telling you what things are going to happen whereas something like birdman it's like the score is a lot tighter and closer to like you said it's almost like the score is the observer not this like kind of grand force from up on high saying what's going to happen yeah it's like wagner versus brecht yes the score is <laughs> yep. either well not either it's not it's not a binary it's it's much more of a spectrum but kind of like the two far ends of it would be like the score that is there to kind of just like sweep you up and make you forget that these emotions aren't initiated from you yourself and just kind of like bring you right into this world versus like the score that is trying like actually actively reminding you that you're watching a movie what are some movies you kind of place at various points along that scale if that's not putting you on the spot too much (laughs) Ooh, okay i think we're definitely talking a lot about that kind of fincher resner ross collaboration like i think that probably goes pretty far on the almost well actually i don't know if that's actually that far on the brecht side but like in that direction where something like pirates of the caribbean or the princess bride oh yeah yeah Although, actually, you know, I keep saying things and then talking myself out of them before I get the whole thought out of my mouth. Welcome to Ghost Notes. (laughs) The thing about The Princess Bride in particular, which I think this is part of why that score works so well for that movie, is that as a book, The Princess Bride is riffing on adventure stories and like this very particular genre kind of thing and i feel like that's a score that is really just embodying that genre for you and almost adding that to it because it's a genre that i don't know necessarily because i was not alive to watch it in the 80s i don't know how familiar that kind of like errol flinney type of genre would have been for an audience in that day but i know like me watching it Like, I didn't have that context. Like, that movie is kind of my context for it. And just the score does such a beautiful job of, like, evoking it, even if you don't have the knowledge base to give it the context. 
I think it's a score that's very kind of like, you can use the word romantic in the traditional sense Mm -hmm. to describe it like this kind of like fairy tale romantic hero, not necessarily, I mean, it is romantic in the love way, but also in the like romantic action adventure way. It definitely has that kind of like sweeping melodrama to it at a lot of points. And then there's things like probably my favorite thing from that score is Fezzik and Inigo's theme, which is just this kind of like stumbling like guitar lick. It's so good. I mean, Mark Knopfler is an incredibly talented musician. Yeah. Or I always think of the uh, both as human and as a person who does sword fighting. Oh, yeah. I'm not left handed scene is just like, whew, like it, it just is never going to get better than that. I mean, the swords are basically a percussion instrument. Yeah. Yeah. I've always loved that, and I've always felt like kind of the scene in Pirates of the Caribbean, how that scored is a bit of an homage to that. Absolutely. Like, where they're fighting in, like, the blacksmith's shop. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Fun fact, actually. I mean, Pirates of the Caribbean as a whole was scored by Hans Zimmer, but do you know who was actually working under him and scored that, like, section and came up with the idea for that section? I'm going to guess Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. (laughs) (laughs) No. Oh, dang. That would be cool, though. I tried. Ramin Jawali, who is famous for the Game of Thrones score. Ah. Yeah, that tracks. Yeah. Very cool. I think there's some great, great pieces of score throughout Game of Thrones. I mean, one that comes to mind to me, especially is the Starks theme. This kind of like sad, gray, like slow moving Celtic pieces that are just so like evocative of kind of the North. And I think that that's something that, especially in a show like that, that spans so long, you get to do these really cool things with the score where they really evoke the different parts of this grand land with all of these different cultures and things like that and all of them have their own interesting musical identities and i think that's a way that a score can almost serve as world building yeah yeah and of course you know it's something you have to be careful of if you're doing like just using your music as a way to show like oh this is this culture this is that culture (laughs) that you don't you know get too stereotypy because that's a very easy line to cross in those where it's just like, oh, this is the culture that's kind of like China. So it's going to have like those like... Yeah, it's going to have a gujang. You know the sounds. Yeah, that's... Yeah, I was blanking on the name, but thank you. Uh, But yeah, and so I think that stuff works best when you're doing like not to spend like all of my time referencing sideways videos this episode but have you all seen the video <laughs> he did on the Ava- avatar the movie not the last yes. Airbender, but the movie yes where they just like built a completely new sort of musical vocabulary working with ethnomusicologists and building like this thing that sort of had aspects of a lot of different cultures but didn't sound like any of them and sounded like this alien thing that i think is a really interesting way to approach using your score as world building and it's something i wish we saw more maybe not to the extent that they did because you know what wound up happening there was that they threw out the score because it was too weird and so they were just like we're just gonna do strings it's fine but like using that as a way to communicate who this culture is is useful but it's also dangerous it can also again like anything else like we were saying be done lazily and especially when you're messing around with other cultures being lazy is not great Yeah, I think a big example of this that was used in a lot of movies historically and unfortunately still is used in some is like the appearance of anything in China and a big gong being hit, you know? Yeah. Like things like that, that can be not just bad, but actively harmful. Yeah. So many scores, you're just like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. Yeah. God damn. No. No, stop. Stop. (laughs) 
Yeah. I like wasn't even like necessarily sure whether I should sing it there, but you know the thing. Yeah. I mean, if we're talking film scores, I think someone that I think there'd be people coming for our heads if we didn't mention Ennio Morricone and his or Ennio Morricone. Is that how you pronounce it? I think Morricone. Yeah. Yeah. I'm more used to reading it. But his scores. Are you a fan of that at all, Laura? You know, I'm totally blanking on what specific scores we're talking about, but I definitely am familiar with the name. So he did like he did like the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? Yeah, yeah, a lot of like classic westerns. Mm, okay, yeah, like he kind of created like what we think of as like spaghetti western soundtracks are Morricone. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think that's tough for me to comment on, both because it's just a genre that I'm not super familiar with, but also because like that's definitely the kind of music that like at this point I would associate just with like creating that genre right and, yeah. and it's like that's where it came from so that's not what it's doing yet that's just what people who are evoking that are doing and i think that's incredibly impressive and also slaps i think on a similar front uh vangelis's score for blade runner like that almost single-handedly created our acoustic idea of what cyberpunk mm-hmm. sounds like mm-hmm. i think that one's a really cool example too of Something where at the time, like synthesizers were such a new, exciting, like futuristic thing. And there's kind of a cultural baggage that comes to that when people watch that. And it's like, oh, this music about this future sounds like it's from the future. And that's kind of a a world building through music as well. Yeah. Another one I think probably on that level is John Carpenter with like Halloween that just like so many of the things that like I would just associate now with like oh yeah that's not even necessarily with just the soundscape but just like technically how a horror movie should sound that like you know the tension building and like the kind of little sting that accompanies the jump scare even if nothing too exciting is happening that it's like oh yeah no like that's where that came from like someone had to come up with that idea (laughs) (laughs) did Carpenter like score his own movies I didn't realize that at least Halloween was definitely him. That's really cool. Yeah, I'm not totally sure if this is accurate, but I believe... We can always fact check it later if you want us to. <laughs> cool. I'm fact checking now. <laughs> <laughs> I believe what happened, because I have heard that Halloween theme specifically, I believe sort of like musically was an idea that already existed. Oh, cool. And because he just had no money making that movie just kind of had to recreate it with what he could do and what he had access to and what came out of it was you know this entire score that is just iconic and horrifying and absolutely is just like kind of the foundation upon which most horror movies since have built um which i mean is true of halloween in in so many ways but particularly from the angle of the score is really interesting Scores in horror movies in general are so interesting because I feel like, I mean, there's a lot of emotions that music can evoke, but for some reason, music is so good at evoking tension and horror and building like dissonance in people to really get people at the edge of their seats. Like, it's hard to imagine a horror movie without the score. Actually, looking up John Carpenter, apparently, actually, the thing was scored by Ennio Morricone. Ah, so there we go. Cool. <laughs> ah, or Morricone. I've pronounced it different every time that I've said it. <laughs> there you go. It'll be everyone can yell at you and everyone can be happy. 
Exactly. Yeah. Another one that I was thinking with the kind of like horror thing is it's not quite horror, but like the tension of something like Jaws. Yeah. Like that score is so iconic and just playing it like does so much emotionally. I've never even seen Jaws and I could sing you the Jaws score and know like exactly what it's used for and why it works. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, one of the most fascinating things to me about, like, Jaws and some of the stuff like that is, like, again, like, like I've never seen the entirety of Jaws. I have listened to the Jaws score. Da, da. That's all you need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's all you need to get so many people thinking yeah. about sharks. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things, like, not to get too far off base, but it's one of those things when you come to, like, the question of music as a universal language, which I'm sure Noah and I will argue about on a later episode. But, like, I say argue about. I'm pretty sure we agree. <laughs> We're very good at aggressively agreeing with each other. <laughs> it's a brand. But, yeah, no, like, just you have these, like, these things that those are just, like, two notes a half step apart, and yet there's such a clear culturally grounded association we have with them because they were used so effectively in this one movie that I've never even seen. And I think that speaks to kind of similar to what we were talking about earlier with the um, classical music stuff is a lot of the time what happens. And I think this is true with John Carpenter as well with Halloween and these horror movie things is it's this process of that thing is so iconic that suddenly that's used to score other things that want to evoke that, whether in homage or parody or out of laziness or things like that. And it just becomes encoded into the culture to the point where like, I have seen so many things parody Jaws with that Jaws theme because it's such an effective theme. Yeah, that was my elementary school band teacher. I'll never hear it and not think of him trying to get uh, make sure the reed players effectively dried out our reeds and singing green slime green slime that's great i think something that is interesting to me about film scores especially kind of like the bigger more orchestral ones is looking at them in relation to kind of classical music and the history of that and i mean spoiler alert it's all just gustav holst but um (laughs) i think that's such an interesting thing because like i think so many of the tropes are taken from a lot of classical music but i know so many people that would probably like never in their life like put on the planets and listen to it but put on the star wars soundtrack and listen Mm -hmm. to it all the time even though they're kind of like musically they're almost identical very similar pieces of music yes yeah but because you have this attachment to the film suddenly there's this thing where it's like oh no i want to listen to this because (laughs) it kind of makes me feel like i'm going on an adventure through the galaxy with my friends (laughs) my close friends oh no my close friends sheev palpatine uh... (laughs) oh no oh no but yeah i mean there's one other thing that you haven't really touched on yet that i would love to hear y'all's thoughts on Mm -hmm. is like I mean, if we're talking about music in films, it kind of feels like we have to address films that are actually musicals. Yes. yes. Just because obviously the music is such a different, plays such a different role in those. And there's obviously like things like Cats 2019, the greatest film of all time, that like has pre-written music except for Beautiful Ghosts, which controversial opinion, I liked Beautiful Ghosts. <laughs> but then, then you have obviously things like most of the Disney Renaissance where like those are pieces of music that were written for the films, about the films, for those stories, but they're still occupying a very different space than the music of, say, Star Wars or The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Right. I think something about the Disney Renaissance and especially the like Ashman Mankin stuff is how closely tied everything about the music is to the story and how they're kind of inseparable. Like I think there's some musicals and especially kind of contemporaries of the like 
Ashman making stuff kind of imitators where it kind of feels like they're like, oh, let's do a story. Let's write the story and then let's put some songs in. Whereas like the Ashman Mankin stuff, it's just like every bit of the music yeah. is so intrinsically tied to what those stories are. Um, and they're so perfectly executed on that. Yeah. <laughs> Controversial take. Ashman and Mankin were pretty good at music. But... Yeah. <laughs> I think it's interesting just kind of where musicals sit in the discussion of musical scores because on the one hand they're like they're almost midway between something like a soundtrack like almost famous or something like that like that uses popular music and something like an orchestral score because i mean a lot of them are written as songs kind of with the conventions of pop music to be kind of like played and sung and listened to as their own self-contained three-minute pop songs but then they also serve very much the same function as these bigger more like wide scope scores to movies yes (laughs) (laughs) i feel like i should have more to say about this being a person who came from musical theater but weirdly enough that always derails me when i start thinking about movie musicals because like Corey, you say movie musicals and jump right into you know ashman and mankin and i'm like oh Right. <laughs> Animated movies. Those are musicals, aren't they? It's not just Chicago and Moulin Rouge. <laughs> to be fair, my first example was Cats 2019. But yeah. That's true. Yes. yes. <laughs> As someone who comes from musical theater, though, like I'd love to hear, and someone who's like also interested in film, I'd love to hear your thoughts as to the process of adapting stage musicals to film because the mediums may feel like they're close but they're certainly different mediums and there's a lot of kind of things that baggage that comes along with that yeah i think it's just something that just requires a really strong artistic choice beyond like this is a musical and people like it so let's make it into a movie and sell tickets you know i mean that's fine people will buy tickets i'll be one of them i'll (laughs) have a fun time with my popcorn but You know, like, I think that's part of the reason why we'll never stop talking about Cats 2019 is because, (laughs) like, it is such a theatrical musical. Yeah, they made a choice. Well, like, I kind of am on the side of, like, there almost were not enough choices. Well, like, there sort of were, but, like, most of the choice was just to do the stage show and just to use the technical capabilities of film to, like, do the stage show but more, which is not boring. I'll say that. It's not boring. (laughs) I also just think it's a very weird choice of a musical to adapt to film because, and maybe I just have, like, the wrong conception of film, but in my mind, I tend to think of film as, like, a narrative medium, and Cats doesn't have a narrative. Like, (laughs) no. Cats didn't have a narrative until pretty late in production. Yeah. <laughs> Did a whole video. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, something that I found hilarious, I'm actually probably among musical theater fans, a bigger fan than most of the stage show of Cats. I went through a whole Cats phase when I was like 12, <laughs> but it was so interesting to see because like there for a hot second when that trailer dropped and everyone was confused there was like this whole genre of internet content which was like person who knows the stage show explaining the stage show to people who are confused by the cats trailer and every single one i would look at and be like that's not the plot i remember <laughs> and like there were there were like six different ones that all went viral and they all had slightly different takes on what exactly happens in 
cats because like the only thing that actually matters is there are a bunch of cats and they all introduce themselves <laughs> and and that's all you really need. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like doing like a Hollywood adaptation of Sondheim's Assassins or something like that. It's a weird musical. And I like I, I remember honestly like when when the trailer dropped, like one of the takes that I remember most strongly was actually yours, Laura, where you were just like on Twitter people were everyone's like, "Oh, this is so weird." And you're just like, "Guys, it's oh. it's not that weird." <laughs> like compared to what Cats was. It's fine. For me, it was specifically, like, I don't know what else we expected. Yeah. Like, specifically knowing that it was Cats and knowing that it was Tom Hooper. Like, it was exactly the amount of creative vision that was brought to Les Mis, which is just like, we just do the stage show, but, like, with cool film stuff. I think the other thing, too, is that I don't think that, like, the cinema world quite understands the weirdness of like the stage musical world like the weirdness of something like starlight express <laughs> or friggin chess i mean uh, like i love chess um uh, well i'm really really hoping for a starlight express movie adaptation yes. they're not going to give it to me they will never give it to me but I, I want it <laughs> i saw that show live in the west end it was just yes it's a transformative experience i think we've actually talked about this on twitter when i was like seven years old my family went to london and i have vague memories of seeing starlight express and i like for years of my life legitimately did not know if this was something that actually happened to me or this was like (laughs) a fever dream that i had that i just like made up in a dream because the whole thing seemed so absurd i don't understand what's absurd about a musical about trains where everyone's on roller skates also i know this is deeply deeply off topic but i have yet to find an opportunity to talk about papa's blues from starlight express are y'all familiar with that song do you remember that no I can't say that I do. It's just this completely random blues song where the character Papa just like sings a description of how blues lyrics work. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's so weird and it doesn't have anything to do with the story. The first verse is like, the first line of the blues is always sung a second time. The first line (laughs) of the blues is always sung a second time. So by the time you get to the third line, you've had time to think of a rhyme. (laughs) It's just like in Starlight Express for no reason. I think we're just like officially into musical talk here, but maybe this is too much of a hot take, but it's probably not. I think Andrew Lloyd Webber should have like, you know, patched things up with Tim Rice because all of Tim Rice's books are significantly better or lyrics rather. (laughs) No, the lyrics are by far the best part of Jesus Christ Superstar. Like, I mean, the best part of Jesus Christ Superstar is Ian Gillian. uh, Well, yeah, but... (laughs) It's just that high G in Gethsemane. That's that's the best part. Yes, exactly. It's a damn good G. That's a solid G. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, anyway, film. It's okay. We're more on topic than we were with Adams. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this might just be another topic for another day, too, in general. But I love musicals, and yeah. I think they're so fascinating. And musical films are really interesting as well in how they integrate music and how they adapt stage musicals and all of this stuff is really interesting to me because it feels like I think we've kind of reached a point where it's like 
we all acknowledge that everyone loves musicals, but I definitely remember growing up, it was like everyone loves musicals, but nobody actually like wants to say that they love musicals. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's definitely like, I don't know, for a long time as a kid, like musicals were a thing that I would like do with my mom, but like I wouldn't talk about with my friends. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, speaking of musicals and musical movies and scores of musical movies. Oh, we're getting on topic now? What? What's that? Yeah. Yeah. I don't have any thoughts on this, but Moulin Rouge makes choices with its music. Yeah. (laughs) Any thoughts? Moulin Rouge and like Baz Luhrmann in general. I want to like it. I want to like it so much because I like so many of the pieces of it, but I continue to just land in this place where it's like, I can appreciate that it is very well done on a craft level and that like there are artistic choices that are made very coherently and very reflected in the craft, but I just do not enjoy it. I just am never going to enjoy watching it. And I don't know why. Like, I can't figure out what that disconnect is because it feels like it should be for me. And I just, I can never get through more than like 20 minutes of it. I think actually another Lerman thing that makes really interesting musical choices that I actually really like, I don't like the movie in general. Like, I think this is his Great Gatsby. I think that his Great Gatsby like as an adaptation of Great Gatsby is like every other adaptation of Great Gatsby, which seems to aggressively ignore what Great Gatsby is about. Wait, books have themes? What? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. But I really, really love the decision to do like contemporary hip hop with like Jay-Z and Beyonce and stuff like that, because I think it's this thing where I think that actually kind of like does a good job of portraying what like hot jazz felt like to people in the 20s like what that music meant and signified and like all of that stuff I think is very what Jay-Z meant in 2013 is very similar to what the jazz that if you had played that jazz to the current audience they would just think it's old-timey even though it kicks total ass but I think the use of the like hip-hop in that context is a really interesting decision that tries to help kind of you know like put you into that like state yeah Yeah. and this kind of i think goes back to what we were talking about with morricone and whatnot where it's just like at the time that music was sort of new and innovative for what he was doing but today that's just what westerns sound like that's what you do when you want to like really stereotypically evoke a western and like this comes back to like another problem with trying to say like what makes music good for effective storytelling is that music exists in a cultural context which i know it's shocking but like whoa it has has blowing my mind here i know (laughs) this is why i make the big bucks but (laughs) this is what you learned in music (laughs) but yeah it's just like you have these cultural contexts and one of the things that culture does is it changes and evolves and so like these things that worked as a great way to sort of be this exciting dynamic sound when the movie was made now for us who were born decades after those movie came out we have these completely different associations and so if we go back and watch say the good the bad and the ugly i think in a very real way we're not hearing morricone's score the way it was quote-unquote intended to be heard because we're viewing it from decades in the future and we don't have the cultural context it was released in and it was written in that's a really good point Mm -hmm. thanks i try to make one of those per episode I think we've got a bit more time, but I want to put it to you, Laura. Are there just any like music scores that you haven't gotten to talk about yet that you just want to kind of like geek out about or point out to people or kind of free reign? Are there any movie scores that you're really fond of that we haven't hit on yet? 
Ooh, you know who I love who we haven't talked about is Nathan Johnson, who is Ryan Johnson's cousin. Oh, cool. Yeah, and has scored most of his movies. I saw like the video of him getting to be involved with Star Wars, but primarily for, you know, Ryan Johnson's other work, Knives Out, Brick. Looper. Brothers Bloom. Of course, I'm going to list it last because that score has been one of my favorites for a very long time. I've never seen the movie. What is the movie and what's the score like? Ooh, okay. So the Brothers Bloom, this is part of what I think is so interesting about these scores in particular is, um, so Ryan Johnson in general, as a filmmaker, tends to kind of make these sort of like sideways takes on genre films. Yeah. Yeah. And so the Brothers Bloom is a heist movie or it's heist movies, maybe not quite right. It's about con artists so it's about these two brothers who are con artists and they are conning this eccentric rich recluse woman and then basically you just spend the rest of the movie trying to figure out who's lying to who and that sounds delightful oh it's great it's one of my favorites totally underrated and the score is this lovely just like jazzy wild just I think the first track on it is called Brothers in a One Hat Town and I feel like that kind of evokes exactly the feeling of what it sounds like very like clarinetti very just like whaley and great (laughs) but there's also Benny Goodman yes yeah totally totally but like budget Benny Goodman that sounds like an insult (laughs) but I mean like literally like there's just not quite as many instruments so it's a little yeah kind of quieter and more intimate I was thinking Benny Hill which is a very different vibe (laughs) yeah anyway go (laughs) yes no (laughs) yeah and I think he just always kind of brings this vibe to it that like it's got almost like a little bit of the more kind of ambient stuff mixed in with the more melodic stuff in a way that is both just really interesting to me on a musical level, but is also just works so well with these movies that are kind of like weird, indie, quiet, sideways takes on genre movies that I just think is really cool. And yeah, Brothers Bloom is the one that I just will listen to on repeat. I think you've just given me a new movie to watch this weekend. Yay! <laughs> yeah, no, I'm going to look that up. I just want to preach preach the gospel of the Brothers Bloom. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm here to do. I think it's really interesting. Again, we've touched on this a bit with Fincher and Ross and Reznor, but I think it's really interesting when directors kind of, a lot of them will work with the same composer over a lot of their career. I mean, you've got like Spielberg and Williams, like you said here, Johnson and Johnson, <laughs> the creator's not the vaccine. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then even like Darren Aronofsky and Clint Mansell do a lot of interesting stuff. And I think that that really speaks to just like how important these scores are to the final product of a movie and how kind of intrinsically tied they are and how closely directors and composers will often work together on this stuff. Yeah, you can think of it almost like as an analogy to a band, right? Like you don't see bands just bringing in like a new guitarist and a new drummer for every album. It's like Steely Dan, but uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you got there before I could. <laughs> I knew you were going to. I heard it as I, was I said. Waiting it. in the bushes. <laughs> <laughs> <just> like... <laughs> But yeah, you do see bands that do like session musicians, but even then you have like groups like the Wrecking Crew and whatnot who like work together as session musicians. And so you have this like a lot of times like good music doesn't come from like one person having an idea and another person having a separate idea and them just seeing if they work. It's from communication between artists who know how to speak each other's language. And in the same way, like a film score, like 
John Williams knows how Steven Spielberg likes to tell stories, and he knows what sorts of musical things will work with the stories that Spielberg is trying to tell because he's worked with him so much and because they're on similar wavelengths artistically and creatively. And so you can't necessarily just like grab like, oh, we're going to put like Hans Zimmer on this because he's a big name, great composer, and therefore it's going to work if he doesn't like work with the person who's doing the yeah. other parts of the movie. There needs to be a buy-in to the vision. Yeah, you're turning yeah. over so much power to yeah. the music. Like, as a filmmaker, you're turning over so much power to whoever's writing the score. Like, you know, on the very small scale, I can definitely speak to that in, like, scoring my videos, that it's, like, sometimes it's a good thing and sometimes it's not, that just, like, whatever piece of music I put underneath this thing that I've already written and made and put together is, um, you know, it's, it's just, it can completely twist it and turn it around in a different way. Yeah. yeah, it makes a lot of sense that filmmakers tend to kind of find someone they trust with that vision. That's honestly one of the reasons I don't score my videos. It's just like there's so much that goes into doing a good underscore and there's so much skill and so much understanding of what the thing is trying to do. And I just I don't have the training and I don't want to like find to spend the time finding someone who can do it. Like there's other reasons I don't as well, but that's like definitely been a part of it. It's just that like so many YouTube videos will just use from like the same sound library. Yeah. And like you learn <laughs> over time to like recognize some of these like, you know, oh, that's Incompetech. You've got the same guitar track from Kevin McLeod that everyone else yeah. uses. Great. Works for some things. It doesn't work for others. But just like, I no, I just decided I didn't want to get involved in that because I did music stuff anyway so yeah yeah i didn't do it for a very long time and then i just got more and more irritated with how low quality my audio was and throwing music over it is a great way to hide it so i learned how to yeah. do okay with free music libraries <laughs> <laughs> yeah i didn't do it for a while but now i have a guy who like does it for me and we work like like i'm always talking closely with him and the like i mean he's great at and he's really come up with like i mean out of just selections from epidemic he's come up with i think kind of like a unique distinctive sound palettes for my videos that are not just kind of generic lo-fi beats to study to but it's definitely yeah. a very it's really specific lo-fi beats to study <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's definitely a very like personal thing as a creator and i can't imagine the yeah. amount of trust that like this is me doing like dumb 10 minute youtube videos i can't <laughs> imagine the amount of trust you need to put in someone to do something that's going to be released to millions of people and is this two hour giant film that i mean a lot of directors especially on early films or stuff like that like you don't know if you're gonna get a chance to do something like this again like no. each time is a gamble and i mean i think there's other reasons for this but i think one of the biggest reasons why star wars became star wars is because of the soundtrack oh, like yeah. i think that is i mean to this day that's still the best part of any star wars movie <laughs> I mean, John Williams is really good at what he does. Whoa, controversial. <laughs> yes, he's excellent at is imitating Gustav Holst. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Borrowing from Gustav Holst. <laughs> Anything else that you want to uh, shout out or any other scores you want to get into, Laura? Ooh, man. I mean, I got my Ryan Johnson propaganda out there. I, I think that was my, my big talking point. <laughs> Speaking of Ryan Johnson propaganda, I have things that I would... You know what? I'm not going to say them because... I don't want the whole internet getting on my back, but um, The Last Jedi is the best Star Wars movie. That's all I'm going um, to... It's a very good Star Wars. It is a good movie. Yep. 
Yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a ton of fun. You've given me movies to check out. Thanks so much for having me. This has been great. Yeah, so if people want to uh, find you and check out your stuff, you got any pluggables that you want to plug? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I am on YouTube and Nebula as Laura Crone, spelled pretty much how it sounds. I'm over on Twitter at DownWithLCC. All righty. You all know where to find Corey and I. In case you don't, I'm Polyphonic on YouTube. They're 12-tone on YouTube. We're also on Nebula. We're on Twitter. All that stuff, you know. Yeah, You know how social media works if you've yeah. been to the <laughs> internet recently. <laughs> yeah, so thanks so much for coming on. This has been a ton of fun, Laura. I feel like I've learned stuff and I've left with a movie recommendation to check out. So I'm going to watch that movie and I yes, will let you do. know how I yes. feel about it. And to all of you out there, thank you so much for watching. We will see you next time, I guess, or you'll hear us next time. Yeah, we, we won't see you. That's not how audio works. But, <laughs> we you will you will put this on and we will be surveilling you from yeah. a distance. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, bye. Take care.